listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. So yesterday, my wife and I decided it might be fun to take Cade over to uh, Berkeley to the, I think they call it the Little Farm, which is up near, uh, in Tilden Park, you know what I'm talking about? And <clears throat> it, it was so precious because she's, she's 15 months, 16 months old and is learning farm animal sounds, which I, of course, over the years have perfected, but she's, she's not had any context. Glad that got you, Barb. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, cow says moo, and she, she looks at me and kind of goes, moo. <laughs> you know, thanks. What the hell, Dad? Why, you know, okay, I get the link, but what does it mean? Well, she understood what moo meant yesterday when a cow, Allie was, you know, holding her right up next to the cow, and I'm trying to get a, get a picture. And the cow is looking at the camera, cow's posing, you know, perfectly. And it knows exactly what's going on. And then Allie, who's, who's, holding, who's holding Cade like this, she's posing. And Cade is just wondering, what the hell is this giant animal? And as if on cue, this tongue that was about that long, you get the idea where this is going, just decided to see what was there as well. And Cade got a giant cow tongue right in the kisser. And the thing was, I got the imagery right before the event. So it'll never be there for posterity, but the pre-tongue slap will be there forever. Um, it was just one of those moments that reminds us <laughs> that no matter how bad things might look, there are always, always little moments to remind you of the infinite. There are always little moments to remind any of us of the infinite. Another one uh, today. Uh, today was actually a pretty cool day. I, was, I spent the whole day with, with my daughter while Allie was taking care of some stuff. And uh, right before I came here, uh, Allie said, well, Daddy's going. You're going to say goodbye? And she says, bye-bye. <laughs> And I thought it would be really cool if we all said goodbye like that. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, what's to keep us from saying, bye-bye? <laughs> and when she says hi, it's hi. <laughs> it's not, hey. Or yo. guys will, yeah, yo, yeah. <laughs> guys will sometimes, uh, uh, they'll, do the, they'll do the head nod <laughs> where they just cock their head back in a swift motion. It's kind of a high. And then women will cover their lower teeth with their lower lip and wave just at the knuckles with the knuckle bend, so it's like this. <laughs> but, but Cade, hi. <laughs> and I said, bye-bye, just bye-bye. I said, I love you, Cade. And she goes, I love you. <laughs> oh. 
She loves me. <laughs> she doesn't have a choice, but oh. It's just a, a, a neat reminder. A neat reminder that uh, we are connected. No matter what the perception might be, no matter how separate we may feel from one another, from even our children or our partners, we're all connected. And what connects us? What is that deep, silent bond that connects each of, each of us? It's, uh, it's actually awakening. And that statement right there ought to get the mind running. The mind immediately kicks in and says, whoa, wait a minute, huh? Wait, what did you just say that again? You know, whatever. And that's okay. That's the small. The big is that within each of us that recognizes fundamentally that we are totally connected by awakening. Awakening to the truth that is beyond name and form. The truth that is still the truth that is silent, the truth that goes beyond concepts, it goes beyond traditions, it goes beyond words. It goes beyond our stories. And this is so key in this work. What, what is your story? What are the stories that you, that you cling to most? What are the stories that resonate with you most? What truths do you subscribe to? What convictions do you hold on to? Things of that nature. It becomes uh, an exploratory work that is so key. If we're ever going to become free of these stories, it doesn't mean we reject them, but it means we become free of their grasp because we have let go. If we're ever going to become free of them, we must know them. We must know our stories. We must know our stories of success. We must know our stories of failure. To know either one, to know either success or failure at its core is to awaken. I, I know that may sound really funny, but that's just the way it kind of works. And then we give that impulse fuel by wanting it. Where a spiritual practice isn't so much a hobby as it may have been in the past, but it evolves into something much more profound, much deeper, much more open, much bigger. I was on a journey where my uh, focus was relatively limited, although the intent behind it was huge. I was uh, quite willing to risk everything, <laughs> much to my fiance's chagrin. Um, we've talked about this before, and if we haven't, let's just say she, she, was, she was very supportive of my going on my journey and told me if I didn't come back, she was going to hunt me down and kill me. And, you know, so it's very clear. Uh, all kidding aside, though, it was a very powerful gift that she gave, which was, you go. I don't want you in a, in, a, in a marriage situation unless you have taken this journey. And if it takes you somewhere other than to me, then let's talk. But it's a very, very beautiful, very uh, powerful moment. 
but I wanted to know so badly that I was willing to risk that. I was willing to risk my professional life and so forth. And what I, what I uncovered was a series of pointers, people, events, all teachers pointing me in a particular direction. And that, that direction was right back, right back home, oddly enough. I wanted to read something uh, uh, from my book where I, where I talked about this uh, real briefly. Recognizing the simultaneous separation and union among all things usually leads us straight into the heart of one of the great contemplative big questions, that being, who am I? There isn't a standard way of answering this question that has ever satisfied human curiosity. But though this kind, excuse me, through this kind of questioning, we can uncover who, or even better, what we are not. The desires of the body and the thoughts of the mind, as well as the experiences of the soul, are part of I's experience. But they are not really I. The real I is a radiant interplay of all these separate things that are ultimately never separate from the infinity of spirit. That thing, in other words, that connects us. That stillness. That awakening. Your body, for instance, may feel pain, or your mind may wrestle with thoughts of alienation, or your soul may intuit a great disconnect. But these perceptions are not I. They are simply perceptions felt by a thing each of us calls I. So what is the real I then? I once asked a Hindu teacher who was sitting on the steps of a temple in Bhaktapur, Nepal. I was told this particular person was a, quote, real, unquote, master by one of the locals, so I figured I would ask him a tough question to get things rolling. He turned toward me, leaned in close, and said, the real I is located where your question comes from. I had no idea what he meant. It must have showed since he pointed his finger at my face and chuckled, revealing to me and the rest of the world a mouth with only a few teeth. I couldn't help but smile back, but I was frustrated. I had always been able to do pretty well when it came to figuring stuff out and getting some type of intellectual understanding of things. But this whole Dharma thing, this spiritual quest, was kicking me pretty hard. I just couldn't grasp it. Which is exactly the whole point. Many of us here may wish to grasp what is being said, what is being discussed. Try your best to become very intimate with that impulse. Because that impulse is ego saying, don't let me awaken. Please don't let anything awaken past me. I would humbly submit that you're bigger than that. <laughs> that each of us is much bigger than that. That we are not the impulse to close down. We, like flowers, have a very deep impulse to open up to what is. So let's practice that. Tonight we'll sit for a few minutes. 
we'll turn around. And again, all I want you to do when you're sitting tonight is as best you can, just allow yourself to create a big field for your thoughts to play around. Watch your thoughts. Don't try to do anything to them. Watch your feelings as they arise. Let them play in that same field because feelings are simply thoughts that are meeting the body. Let everything just play in that field, or better yet, on that stage. Be the audience of the entire experience. Be fully present for the entire experience of what's going on on that stage, and just witness it. If you find yourself like a, uh, a puppy getting distracted, okay, watch the puppy. If you find yourself filled with anxiety, watch the anxiety. If you find yourself full of bliss, grace, ease, watch all of that. But just watch it. Just watch it. Last week we spent a fair amount of time kind of laying out how this works, how this, uh, um, actually, I, I, let, let, me, let me back up. I think we spent a lot of time talking about how this experience that we have called life oftentimes doesn't work. And my intent tonight is to kind of add to the puzzle uh, and hopefully contribute a little bit to the solving of the puzzle, but in kind of a backward way. We, we really think that uh, spiritual work is about fixing something, and it's not. It's about being present in the disaster so that we can actually become a master of our disaster. Okay? <laughs> Whatever that disaster is, can we maintain a certain presence, a certain aplomb, a certain solidity. In doing so, what we do is we uncover what is underneath it. Just like, metaphorically, as I've said, you know, the real world is always going to have hurricanes. It's always going to have storms, just like the surface of the ocean. It's all, it, it'll always be there. Some seasons will be worse than others. But the surface of the ocean will always have variance. It will always have unpredictability. It will always have a mess. It will also have gorgeous views. Where sun, air, earth, water all meet at once. But our work as sitters, regardless of tradition, if we can uncover the silence within and let it co-mingle and co-arise with the silence that is on the outside of us, suddenly we, we become this like uh, gossamer opening, closing, this, this almost, I sometimes look at it as a flag or as a door that swings open and swings open. We are that door between what is interior and exterior all the time. 
when we sit, we start to see that. And when we start to see that, we start to deepen our practice to a point that we become the deep water in the ocean. We start seeing that no matter what's going on on the surface, as we deepen our experience, as we start literally falling fathom after fathom after fathom after fathom into the stillness, we recognize that no matter what's going on on the surface, we can be fully expressed from this place of infinite calm. It's not that the disaster isn't happening on the surface or the gorgeous view isn't happening on the surface. Of course it is. It's always going to be there, but we're not caught by that mess. We have more choices the deeper we go. The deeper we go, the quieter we become. The more stillness is integrated, the more stillness that is integrated into our experience and out of our expressive hands, voices, faces, bodies, the more awakening there is for everybody. And so what we talked about this last week was the uh, kind of like the, the, I think I referred to it as the stage of mind. Where on the stage, we've got the ego acting out its little scripts. We call them stories sometimes. There's this narrative that we give to just about everything in our life. One that's has been on several minds recently has been, you know, uh, our definition of what it means to be a Republican or a Democrat or what is fair or what is unfair, just or unjust, right or wrong. Those are all stories that we've authored. And it's not that they're right or that they're wrong, but it's our fixation on their rectitude or our fixation on the fact that they are wrong that gets us into trouble, that causes and generates more and more suffering. This is a great question for each of us on the path. What stories do you fixate on? I had a professor at Cal, his name, uh, I think it was Jerry Strankman. I want to say Jerry was his first name. He was a judge. And he, uh, he wrote this book, I remember reading, about uh, interpretations of law and how he said that what he has found as a judge sitting in, in, in trial scenarios and also as an appellate court judge and so forth, he said, what, what I've noticed is the best story wins the case. The best story wins the case. The greatest trial lawyers are the ones that can pull out of what appears to be nothing, an amazing story that can resonate in the hearts and minds of a jury or in the hearts and minds of what would otherwise be truly jaded judges. And he said the power of the narrative is something we overlook constantly. And I remember it at the time thinking, God, we humans are just, we're addicted to stories. Stories are what we identify with. What is it that you identify with? A story of what looks good, what doesn't look good. 
That's a great one. A story of what I should be doing with my life. A story of what they should be doing with their lives, or she should be doing with her, or he should be. We go into these stories, and we imbue them with this power. And that power is power we create through our attachment. When we attach to things, we give power to these stories. And they come from one of two places. They come from our past. We either create stories around something we have experienced already, or experiences we don't want to have in the future, or maybe ones we definitely want to make sure we have in the future. So what are we talking about here? When we talk about past and future, we are talking about time. Every story you have about everything, every story I have, all of these stories are fueled by our sense of time. And when we can see a story, which is a trick in and of itself, but once that happens, once meditation brings us into a place where we can actually watch our minds as they work, and we can see, oh my goodness, there's a story I've been carrying around with me for years from the past, we then immediately have this gift, this opportunity to disidentify with that story or unhook from it or become non-attached or unattached from it, however you want, whatever word you want to use. Voices or repetitive uh, uh, thoughts that we have. By the way, if you're hearing voices, that's a whole other issue and, you know, <laughs> maybe we should talk. But if uh, quite literally, I mean, we're hearing voices all the time. Um, I hear voices all the time from uh, my imaginary friend, Timmy, who lives in my eyebrow, actually. But the, I'm kidding. I don't know where that came from, but just pretend. No, if you think about, <laughs> if you think about this, we're having these stories repeated all the time. Repetitious, discursive thoughts that are constantly, constantly happening. You had enough? Because when we are in that space, when we have had enough, when there is something, some impulse in us that kind of goes, I'm ready. Follow that. Follow that. Because that's infinity knocking. It's making an offering, saying, I'm right here. I'm right here to catch you. You're not going to fall. I'm right here to catch you. All you have to do is stop hitting your thumb with that hammer. That's all you have to stop doing. Our addiction, in other words, to our past thoughts is exactly like a hammer. Pounding our thumb and we're wondering why it hurts. Same thing with the future. If we have some future want or desire that we are shooting for, we are becoming absolutely, totally focused, totally focused on that future want or desire. And we hold on to it with more and more and more force. What do we do? That force, that energy that we're giving it, that attachment, is actually what generates pain, generates suffering. And so the trick is, I've sometimes referred to it, if you were to hold your hands as hard as you can, I don't remember this trick when you're like in second grade, hold your hands as hard as you can for as long as you can and then let go and, and it's, it's very difficult to open your hands slowly. 
That's essentially what we're doing here. We're going through a process of recognizing, my gosh, I'm gripping. I'm holding on. Okay, and now we're going to try to let go a little bit. And it's like, uh, I, I can't. I can't. That's when it takes some extra belief, faith. And that's about the only time I will ever use that word in this practice. Because faith in and of itself, that it'll all work out just like we planned, or faith that something in the future will offer us salvation, creates more attachment. So once we can recognize how much the past and how much the future occupy center stage, once we can start to see that, what we can start to recognize is that there's a way out of that. There's a way to identify our stories. There's a way for us to essentially go, oh, I know that story. I've seen, I've seen the delivery of that soliloquy before on the stage of mind. It's very convincing. Nice work. <laughs> we create this distance, this space, between our egos that are having this hell of a time on stage, working really hard to convince everybody in the audience that not only is it a good actor, but it's in fact reality. It's the whole of reality. And the stories that it demonstrates, the stories that it delivers convincingly are real, are powerful, and are the whole truth and nothing but the truth. When we begin to watch this happen on stage, when we can start to see it unfold, the ego starts to feel that it's being watched. And when it's being watched, when, it's, when it becomes kind of self-aware, when the ego becomes self-aware, it starts to get nervous. It starts to worry about forgetting its lines. It never had to worry about this when we were unconscious. When there was no audience, it would just run, run around on the stage of mind like it owned the place and didn't have to worry about anything. It never had to worry about bumping into the furniture. It never had to worry about a missed cue up in the sound box. It never had to worry about anything. It really never had to worry at all because it was the whole story. But the minute we start getting on this path is the minute we start seeing that the ego itself, in addition to delivering all these stories, is itself a story. If the ego is seen as a story, as being incomplete, it no longer holds sway over experience. It's no longer in charge. It's weakened. It's hobbled. And what fills it? Something that is truly remarkable because it's not a thing at all. It's presence. It's being. In Zen, we call it emptiness. Emptiness fills everything. How's that for a paradox? Very difficult to try to get our, get our minds around that. 
try to get a handle on that, which is exactly the point, because this work is not about getting a handle on anything. It's about letting go of everything. It's about seeing that you cannot grab a handful of air, so to speak. You just can't. You can keep working on it all you want. Um, you'll look funny, uh, and it's not going to take you very far. But this shattering reality of hugeness, beyond the scope of words, beyond the scope of dialogue, is quite beautiful. <laughs> it's a hard sell. It's a very hard sell. What do you got? Nothing. I mean, really, nothing. Emptiness. But, miraculously, that emptiness is at the core of everythingness. When we start seeing that emptiness as something that is actually who we are, we are an expression of that emptiness, as is every other person. We start seeing all beings as partners in this great experience. We start seeing a non-division. We start seeing that all of our stories about success, about failure, about right, wrong, this, that, I want, I don't want, all of those stories begin to lose their weight. And as Milan Kundera would say, we jump into an unbearable lightness of just being. So watch your stories. Know that they're just patterns on the surface and that at your core there is depth. That while it may be busy on the surface of your life, deep down there's total rel relaxation and stillness. Underneath it all, there is freedom. questions and answers if anybody would care to uh, engage. Yes. Michael, when you start to see through your stories, um, I'm, tr I'm trying to find a place to act from and I'm thinking back in my days of karate and we'd be sparring and get caught up in your head and you start worrying and attaching to your thoughts, you're going to get hit. Um, if you can let go and um, go into the hara mm -hmm. and get into your body, then you, you move more naturally. You know what to do. Is it kind of like that? I th I'd say very much like that. M moving from, if you will, the hara, that, that, that center that center that is always there, yeah. um, allowing an, a response to come from that place that is always there that never moves 
is always going to be an appropriate response to whatever is going on on the surface. This is the same way. I, I, I always talk about how we, you know, enlightenment really is an appropriate response. There are no enlightened people. There are enlightened actions. And so when we, when we can continually come from that openness, that place that's not addicted to mind, if it's not addicted to mind, it cannot be, by definition, bound by time. Because mind cannot exist without time. Without past and without future, there is what we call no mind. And that no mind is the present moment. And so in karate or in combat situations like that, um, and my teacher actually happened to be a boxer. He, he spoke of this too. He said, you could not, you could not try to outthink the other person. This was not chess. Or at least boxers who tended to look at boxing like chess tended to fail quickly. Because they, they were coming at it from, uh, well, let's see, I should hit here. No, it has, to, it has to be part of that flow. And when we are coming from our minds, we immediately eddy ourselves instead of being in the flow of that stream a stream that has been stilled by our meditation practice which allows us to see the obstructions that create these eddies whenever we go into mind and we get kind of locked by it we we just we take a right turn you know and we start spinning so yeah i think that's really apt you know being in this free flow of being recognizing fully that we're going to have disasters and we're going to have great moments. We might even have great decades, you know? But the, the rug will get pulled out from under, and at some point, practicing whether we're in disaster or in a great space doesn't matter. Each, each can offer us awakening in equal parts. All we have to do is be present, present for the arising of whatever is, and then responding appropriately. And responding appropriately always involves a non-egoic expression of helpfulness to all concerned, including you. <laughs> yes? Um, you just said that there are no enlightened people, but Buddha was enlightened. Who was Buddha? Shocking Buddha. I, see, I don't know if he lived. Are in India. Maybe. <laughs> they say. They say. And I'm, I'm playing with you here. I don't know. I don't care. It's not important. Whether the Buddha lived or not, not important. Whether the Dalai Lama is enlightened or not, not none of that is important. What is important, though, is recognizing our stories around the Buddha. Because if we have stories around the Buddha or around the Christ or around Muhammad, what happens is we can jump right into that place of fundamentalism that gets really, really locked. And guess what? Then we're in that space of clinging. This is true. This is not. And so kind of having this, this open approach, which the Buddha taught actually, when we have this kind of open spaciousness around all of those stories, awakening is ours. Now, institutionally, as an institution, you better believe his ashes are in that place because then I can get you.
I can get you to attach to that, and I can get you to give money. Institutionally. But whether he's there or not, I, I can't say. I don't know if Ananda remembered all of his teachings from memory, which, by the way, weren't written down until, was it 300 years after his birth? So, I don't know. But I also don't know that it's that important. What's important is your realization of your internal Buddhahood. What's important, Deborah, is for you to see Buddha within and without in equal measures. That's the middle way. It's okay. I won't, I won't go on, but I could. <laughs> go for it. Go for yeah. it. Please. Well, a couple of things. Um, I was simply responding to when you said there are no enlightened people, mm -hmm. not whether or not we should put energy toward them or not. Oh, okay. Right. So was he enlightened or not? Um, well, his ashes are in about eight or nine places. Suppo you can see <laughs> Supposedly, supposedly. <laughs> right. So, you know, but... Um, and what was the Buddha? The Buddha was enlightenment. An appropriate response. <laughs> right? The Buddha was presence. Right. And whether it was a man or a woman? Well, I don't care about that either. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so, when, and actually that's Suzuki Roshi's quote, so I better footnote it. Suzuki Roshi, you know, that, his teaching was, he said, look, there are no enlightened people, there are enlightened actions. And so what we have there is when we start looking at enlightened activity being helpful activity that comes from a selfless place, we get much closer, much closer to seeing Buddha in our own hands. Our own feet. Yeah. Actually, maybe, maybe it's um, there are actions and journeys that avail us to enlightenment. Yeah. That make it more likely that that phenomenon will occur mm -hmm. in a person. Yeah. Enlightenment is an accident, and some aspects of yeah. the journey make us accident prone. Right. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for thinking it's a good way to put it. <laughs> yes? You had mentioned about um, in times of upheaval or times of calm, it's important to respond appropriately. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure I understand what that means. Well, in other words, the appropriate response is always going to be a response that comes from a place of deep forgiveness. So in other words, however we respond, and because forgiveness is a surrendering, is a letting go, right? And so if we're really going to, if we're going to walk our talk, letting go means letting go of everything, right? Including the story we have about that jackass who now he wants me, you know, whatever, whatever it happens to be, or, or the Buddha, whatever story we have about the Buddha, whatever it is. If we come at our response from a place of openness, meaning where we're not clinging to anything, we're not clinging to an outcome, and we're not clinging to a memory, then we're really present. Then Buddha is expressing herself through us. Not justifying, not being right or wrong. Right. Being right or wrong becomes 
secondary, tertiary. It goes way down the line of things that are, actually, I would say it goes for, it, it's all the way at the back. It doesn't, it doesn't matter because we become expressions of intense generosity. And that is awakening. That's where awakening comes down the mountaintop from, you know, the whatever image we might have about enlightenment or what it's supposed to look like, we start recognizing that whatever story we had about what awakening is supposed to look like, it's not that. It can't even come close. Our thoughts about what awakening is or should be cannot come close to its actual expression. And its actual expression can be so simple. It can be my weakened knees and tears when my daughter told me she loved me tonight. You know, That's an appropriate response to that. It also might be to stop someone from doing something really unconscious as long as your heart and your mind are going into the situation without any semblance of vengeance or aggression or, but about trying to help serve. <laughs> yes? Sure, okay. sure. Okay, so a couple of years ago I had a clinical depression and it was sort of a combination of my company failing and my father dying and tearing my ACL. And the whole thing. The whole thing. Yeah. And, you know, life just fell apart and I was keeping everything together. And so I went to bed, clinically depressed, and the medical community said, you know, you need to be medicated. You right. Come back. And so two years later, changed a few things in my life, but once again, everything's sort of falling apart, and as I was envisioning myself in this field, I, there I am, taking care of everybody and everything that's falling apart again, and not taking, you know, not, not looking to the medical community again, but I, how do I release myself from that place in that field of just feeling like I have to keep everybody functioning and happy and together and... How would you um, how would you drop a hot piece of charcoal? <laughs> like that. Yeah. Right? Are you ready? Because that's what's that's exactly the impulse. That's exactly the impulse. Because what happens is when we start trying to take care of everything and managing, every, I mean, how exhausting is that? I mean, it, it's no. Of course, that's going to depress us. And that's ego's way of making sure that you don't hear the knock at the door. So in other words, there, there might be some neurochemical things that are going on. Western medicine has got that one down, you know? All right? They can, they can create, create amazing chemicals that can work literally as molecular sieves on your neurons. Okay? How cool is that? And it can also prevent you from facing the reality of your life. So finding that balance, that gets to be your, that's when you turn your life into an art, where you simultaneously recognize where the brain may be struggling, and you also recognize where the mind may be addicted to itself, and ego may be addicted to the stories that it's, it's written. And we get to see what happens. And there's no, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pr ever, ever get up here and say, this is what will happen. 
I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. But there is an opportunity here, whether our life is in disaster or it is in bliss. There is an opportunity for us to open to the whole of it in small doses at first. And just like home homeopathy, little bits of the toxin, we start recognizing our, our entire system down to the cellular level starts going, I'm still here. But it's not an I. It's something bigger. And therefore, I'm free. I'm infinitely supported by the universe because I am an expression of the universe. So report back, please. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for coming tonight.